Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. And today we're joined by Neelam Chand. She is the founder and CEO of Shift SLC. It's a diversity and inclusion consulting firm here in uh, Salt Lake City. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, you know, uh, uh, I wanted to have you on because, for me, one of the things, uh, I read a, an article you wrote in Utah Business. And essentially it was uh, talking about kind of the momentum that had been gained uh, from some of the activism that had gone on this summer. And I want you to kind of explain a little bit more about that, but what, how is it that you came to write this particular article? Yeah, because as my role as a diversity and inclusion consultant, I talk to several different organizations across, across the nation. And we talk a lot about how to really bolster diversity and inclusion within the organization. And what I've noticed is during the summer of 2020, I've noticed that a lot of organizations wanted to really talk about racial justice and what that would look like. Uh, they wanted anti-racism trainings. They wanted to hire a chief diversity officer or um, have a few folks really kind of activate diversity and inclusion within their organization. Uh, they, they started employee resource groups, groups that really focused on different cultural aspects of different identities. And so all of this happened and then it sort of died down. And I've realized that in, in my conversations with you know different CEOs and organization leaders where um, it's no longer about racial justice, it's more about how do we how do we do diversity and inclusion work uh, at the the lowest cost possible? And, and to say that we've done it. Um, and I don't think all organizations are, are doing that, but the organizations that really just wanted to do anti-racism work for the summer, sort of taken anti-racism work and put it in the backseat and really started to focus on other parts of the business. And so I wrote this article as a kind of a, a wake-up call, but also a call to action to not let anti-racism work fall back to to not be silent about anti-racism work because it is something that needs to continuously be practiced uh, not just for a moment but for the longevity of your business um, from start to finish because the moment that you, you lose that momentum is the moment that you are showing that you don't actually care about this work not in a very authentic or genuine genuine way so when you were talking to organizations, what was it that they that you saw that was it fatigue? Was it not understanding that this was like a, a this is a lifetime practice? I mean, it's sort of like the uh, the old adage, um, life is not cured, it's managed. And I would say that probably applies to anti-racism <laughs> um, that we're going to have that the work is constant. I mean, it's a lifelong endeavor to undo you know this. And so I, I guess I wonder what you saw 
or what you heard was the reason for sort of falling away from some of these ideals? So the organizations that have sort of fell silence on anti-racism are the organizations that uh, really were in crisis management mode. So during the summer after the death of, or the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, uh, a lot, and, and many others uh, before, a lot of organizations had employees that were fed up, Black, Indigenous, people of color employees that were fed up and were, you know, really demanding more from their leadership. And so leaders, instead of actually acknowledging that they may be part of the problem, it was more of how do we fix this and how do we fix this quickly so that our employees can really just move on so we can get back to business. And those organizations, you know, either did a one-off anti-racism training or maybe they did a whole bunch of listening tours where they listened to their employees and then kind of fell off the map, but they felt like they did their job and then they moved on. And so I think it's the crisis management piece. It's no longer a crisis. So we can move on and move on to other things. Um, we don't need to focus on anti-racism because no one's bringing it up anymore. So I think that was really the, the biggest issue that, that we're facing and that we're seeing organizations kind of moving away from anti-racism work into day-to-day -day business uh, because it's no longer a crisis. The name of the article is now that protests are over, companies are going back to business as usual. And it was published on January, in the January 5th issue of Utah Business. And you know, when I, when I read it, I thought to myself, this is kind of what happens so often with, um, at least to me in my experience in the half a century I've been alive, is that uh, race-related uh, issues can dissipate if momentum isn't maintained over an extended uh, period of time. And so it, when the protests were continuing this summer, then you, you kept hearing about it. You kept hearing these efforts that uh, companies and corporations were trying to implement because they, they saw the, uh, the legitimacy of the issue and they thought to themselves, well, this is how we can support it. But as time went on, there were fewer protests. Other things became uh, you know, equally as important and then eventually kind of overrode it, uh, especially when we got into the political season. So they took their eye off the ball and they thought, well, obviously it's not that important anymore. We should move on to something else. How do you, what do you do to help people understand and uh, employers and, and uh, other kinds of institutions to understand that it's important to maintain that momentum so that we can really, really move the needle and, and have progress so that we do have diversity, so that we do have inclusion, we do have equality? Yeah, and it, it really, and I wrote this in my article, but it really starts at the leadership level. So I personally, what I try to do is I try to work with leaders to, to get them to a place where they can have a better understanding of their role in anti-racism work and in their role in racism in general, how they contribute, how their ideologies and behaviors may uh, uphold racist ideologies. And so I think when leaders go through a personal journey and they, and, and not, all, not all folks, and if you think about who our leaders are in these organizations, especially in corporate America, they're majority white male, um, and not all of them will have this come to this realization that they are part of the systems that uphold racism. Um, but for those who do, for those who actually take some personal accountability in racism, those are the organizations that then interweave 
anti-racism work within the DNA of their organization. And when, when we get to that point, then we get to the point where we just practice the muscle. We practice the muscle of anti-racism because it is every part of what the organization does. Um, it's part of their business. It's part of their bottom line. It's part of their culture. It's part of the way that the organization thinks. But we don't get there until the leaders in these organizations get to a point where they have a personal understanding of what it means to be anti-racist and what it means for them on a very, um, on a very human, personal level. Until then, it's just actions that are, you know, that are sporadic, again, based off of some sort of crisis. Do you think that there were, I mean, the majority of people who tried to address issues that arose in the summer, um, sort of in the wake of the protests, um, do you think they, do you think they actually did ever come to a true understanding of what's happening? Or do you think it was simply um, trying to placate or deal with an issue at, you know, amongst their employees? I think for the organizations, and I'm telling you, there are some great organizations out there that are doing the work. Um, and so when I wrote this article, I think there was this misconception that, you know, all organizations are, you know, are, are at this place where they are, where they, where they just don't care. And that's not the case. Actually, quite a bit of organizations are in their very beginning journey of anti-racism work. But the organizations that just wanted to do performative allyship, which means basically to show the world that they care about these issues, uh, whether it be through an ad or a social media post or a statement, um, those organizations that just did that and didn't do the actions that required of that was required of them to back up the statements, uh, those were the organizations that really just did their one thing and then moved on to, you know, to business as usual. Um, I think. I think that those organizations are the ones that are suffering the most. The employees within that organization is suffering the most. And, um, and I am seeing that. I am seeing employees, Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color employees that are asking their questions of their leaders. What happened? You made a statement. Um, you purchased an ad that said Black Lives Matter. What happened? Where, where's the follow-up? Why are we not talking about this anymore? Um, and, and a lot of employees are being impacted by it. When we come back, I want to continue this discussion and, and talk a little bit about as when it, when we talk about, uh, leadership in these companies and in these corporations, uh, how they can have a personal stake in making sure that happens. Because if, if you're a leader and you say to yourself, I want to make this part of the fabric of my company, then it'll happen. If you don't have that, uh, that accountability, if you, if you don't have that, uh, drive and passion, then chances are it will just kind of uh, go to the wayside when uh, that momentum is lost. We are speaking today with Neelam Chan. She is founder and CEO of Shift uh, SLC. That is a diversity and inclusion consulting firm. And I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson, and you're listening to Voices of Reason. I'm Dave Cauley investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. 
Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. Along with Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. Today we're speaking with Neelam Chand, founder and CEO of Shift SLC, a diversity and inclusion consulting firm in Salt Lake City, of course. And uh, we started off talking about an article that she wrote in Utah Business uh, entitled, Now That the Protests Are Over, Companies Are Going Back to Business as Usual. And uh, you kind of spoke about how what, what kind of transpires as there is this big push, this big awakening, but then over time, it, it literally, uh, momentum kind of dissipates. And where do we go from then? And, and how do you uh, prevent those kinds of things from happening? But uh, Amy was mentioning, what, what are some, some concrete things that you can suggest to some of these uh, companies and, and some of these institutions that will help you know, actually con- continue the progress that could potentially be made if uh, a concerted effort is uh, actually undertaken to, uh, to have diversity and have inclusion? Yeah, I would say the first thing that organizations can do is acknowledge. Acknowledgement of that racism exists. And the acknowledgement of of white supremacy and how white supremacy can play out within a workplace setting. I know that the word white supremacy can really rattle folks because when people think about white supremacy, they think about, you know, KKK or, you know, these these groups that are, you know, that are that are promoting racism in a very visceral way. But white supremacy is really, it permeates systems. It permeates our day-to-day culture. And so when you can acknowledge as a leader, acknowledge that the foundations of our organization is, is laid on the work of white supremacy or that racism actually exists within the organization, that then you're able to, you're actually opening up doors to dismantle and really tackle the issues of racism. So, so acknowledging is a first thing. And then secondly, conveying to your organization, taking a clear position of anti-racism within your organization. That means that anything that is remotely close to racism within the organization or racial discrimination will not be tolerated within the organization. So to say that and to have that conveyed in your policies is the is one of the most important things that you could do. Then you can really start to get into, okay, how does racism show up in our policies, in our practices, in our procedures? Um, what does that actually look like? How do we support racism in our culture? And it's really taking that lens and looking at every part of your organization through the lens of anti-racism. Um, and I think those are the biggest ways. And then from there, you can start to attach anti-racism work within the way you do business. So holding yourself as leaders accountable and holding employees accountable to that, uh, whether that be attaching it to metrics or uh, attaching it to objectives or goals for the organization in terms of business. Um, I think those are tangible ways of really understanding and and really putting into action anti-racism work. Those are those are fairly simple. Uh, they're not things that that take years and years and years. Uh, Jason and I were talking just before this, and we're saying that that these things, yes, 
anti-racism work takes a, a it's a long time. It's, it could take lifetimes of, of, of really doing this work. But these tangibles are low-hanging fruits. They're things that can happen within a year. Yeah, but you you just said I think the key that I think is not the case for most businesses and most people who are not aware or who who before these protests or before I think it was really George Floyd was the pivotal um, killing that eight minutes and forty six seconds just was so difficult to look away from um, that I think that was really what sort of started making people who had not acknowledged racism in businesses or in in daily life sort of take a look at it but i think in my conversations i think we don't have a lot of people white people white businesses white owned businesses that are really willing to acknowledge the pervasiveness the depth the, the you know the reality really and so i just i wonder if you're in an organization where you know you're never going to get the kind of buy-in that you've just talked about which would be amazing um right. It, what could you do? Can you do anything? If you're a person within an organization that where leaders and you have predominantly white leaders who don't believe in this work, then it is really up to you on whether you want to stay in that organization. And I say that it's it's a kind of a harsh reality. And I say that because there is it isn't up to you as employees. And I, and I, an example is I've, I uh, was consulting an organization where um, majority of their employees felt that racism existed uh, through racial microaggressions, which are, which are sort of subtle racial discriminations that happen on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so we did a survey to kind of find out, you know, the sentiments across the board in terms of culture of the organization. And a lot of the employees, specifically employees of color, felt that the organization did not foster a, a workplace that is anti-racist. Whereas on the leadership, uh, when we did the same survey, the leaders ignored the fact that racism even existed. They, they felt that their organization was perfectly fine. Uh, they were sort of in the state of denial where their organization um, was great the way it is. And no leader wants to align with an organization that they represent that's that's remotely close to race being racist um so there's a big disconnect between employees and leaders and when leaders do not shift their mentality or their mindset around this work then employees don't have the power to actually work upstream to to change the minds of their leaders they can try but that's an emotionally taxing um really emotionally pro taxing project to to take on so it's really up to you as, a, as an employee whether you want to align with that organization whether you want to stay within that organization or not and i know that's really tough because there's there's really not a great answer to that question but it 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 truly just means that there the power lies in leadership and if they are not willing to move the needle then it's not your responsibility as an employee. You know, when I look at this, uh, the thing that uh, kind of troubles me, and, and this is kind of uh, to the point we talked about before, if, if your leadership doesn't recognize their own blind spot, then they, they won't have any reason to feel like they need to change. And then you have to somehow convince them that they have this blind spot when being called a racist to many, uh, you know, majority people is one of the worst things, if not the worst thing you can say to them. 
and certainly when they don't feel that this is true. And how, I don't know if there even is, is a way to overcome that when the, their first reaction is to defend themselves rather than to accept, say, hey, well, maybe there's some, um, some legitimacy to what's being said here, and rather, taking it, rather than taking it personally, maybe I can do some, uh, you know, look inwardly and determine if, if in fact there is some truth to it. And I think the biggest thing is really normalizing the concept of racism and normalizing that we all carry and contribute to racist ideologies. Um, that it's every single one of us. Uh, me as a person of color, I had to do a lot of soul searching to really understand the way I show up and how I uphold racist ideologies, even as a person of color. And so I think just normalizing the word racism and normalizing that we all carry racist ideologies. Then now does that, that that doesn't absolve the roles that white people, white male, white women play in in racism. But what that does do is that each one of us have to take time introspectively understand how we contribute to racism. And I think if we can normalize it, then the conversation can be a little bit easier. Not super easy <laughs> doesn't make it smooth sailing but it, do it does make it a little bit easier we're joined today by neelam chan she is the founder and ceo of shift slc a diversity and inclusion consulting firm and she's trying to enlighten us on, on how business and and just institutions in general can uh make their entities better by being more aware of uh, the potential racism that exists and what they can do to actually uh improve the situation so that you know it doesn't exist uh, at least in the in the forms that it has has been uh, along with amy donaldson i'm jason lee you're listening to the loudmouth project's voices of reason Back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're joined by Neelam Chan, founder and CEO of Shift SLC, a diversity and inclusion consulting firm uh, in Utah. And uh, when we were speaking offline, Neelam, you mentioned that uh, one of the things that uh, is of interest to you is how companies, uh, how they use uh, their brand ID to kind of promote, obviously, themselves, but how is it that the institutional idea of racism might factor into how they identify. Yeah, so what's interesting is that Edelman, um, a communications firm, a large communications firm, came out with a special sort of report. Um, this was during the summer of 2020. And they came out with a report where they, where they surveyed uh, a, a bunch of young, uh, young folks, millennials and Gen Zs, um, on sort of the types of brands that they support. And what they found in this in this survey is that 60% of the folks that were surveyed said that they support brands that align with racial justice, um, and they will only support support brands that align with racial justice. And those same 60% also felt that brands need to not only align with social justice, but they actually have a role to educate and influence on on racial justice work. So they're not just brands that sell services or products, that they are actual folks that influence our society towards racial justice. And I think that's profound to look at because 
we as you know when we think about corporate the corporate world and and the corporate's responsibility in in making change in our society it, this this report just tells you how our young folks are thinking and our young folks we're not in a in a day and age where young people are silent they use they turn to twitter they turn to all the social media um, platforms to really hold these organizations accountable so if you don't align with racial justice if you're not doing your part in our society to promote racial justice to promote anti-racism work you're going to be under scrutiny uh, young folks are going to call you out and they're going to also question whether they want to invest in you uh, or your brand and i think that's huge i think that's really important but i also say this because i i don't want companies and organizational leaders to tell a story that they support racial justice, where in fact, their actions, their policies, their systems don't actually align with that support, with, with, with those statements. And so there's a balance there. Um, and so if you wanna get to a point where you can tell folks, where you can tell young folks that we are a brand that you can trust, we are a brand that, that wanna make change in our society, um, we are a brand that actually has opinions in, in politics, that, that politics actually plays a role in our, in our services and our products. Um, until you get to that point, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't make those pro proclamations. Um, but I think it's very important to head that direction because of our young people and how our young people are holding um, companies accountable. Can you give me some other insights? I mean, there, I had two thoughts. The first one is um, when you're talking to people, to employers about anti-racism, how do you handle it when you run into somebody who takes things personally? I mean, like when you talk white supremacy and they think you're saying they're a white supremacist, right? And mm -hmm. and and also, how do you handle it when you're you're describing or discussing a racist incident or race, racism, institutional racism, and it's not? I I always Jason knows I have described things like this before. It's not racist enough for somebody to see it as racist. So, you know, I mean, it's definitely racist, but there are some people who, unless it's like wearing a white hood and saying the N word, it's not racist enough. So with those two scenarios, I wonder if, if you've run into them when you work with corporate leaders and, and what you would advise. Absolutely. <laughs> those have happened several different times. Um, when we talk about racism, it's a personal issue. Um, and so I think when, when I deal with folks who feel very personal, when they feel personally attacked, um, I think it's, it's a little tough, um, to navigate those waters because again, we're, my job is to help change attitudes and mindsets so that behaviors can change. Um, but when those attitudes and mindsets are sort of stuck and don't necessarily want to face sort of where they're at, where, how they contribute to racism. Um, I have to decipher and kind of back to the question, um, what do employees do when their leaders don't acknowledge racism? Um, it, I kind of have to decipher whether that person who is so um, against this work or who feels very personally attacked, whether I want to continue engaging, because I think the, the where the change happens where transformation happens is where folks um they're going to feel personally attacked they're going to feel uncomfortable when we talk about racism and white privilege and and we use those words and we use the words white supremacy people are going to feel uncomfortable and i think that's fine but 
to the point where people feel closed off, those are the folks that are not going to help move the needle to, towards change. And what I found is majority of the folks are actually in the middle. These folks are, are apprehensive to have the conversation because there's a lot of fear in, in what they're going to say and, and they're worried about the mistakes that they're going to make. But, but I think they're willing to change. They're open to the conversation. Um, but the moment that the words like white supremacy and racism shuts them off and they're not willing to engage, that's kind of on them. And so I, I kind of leave those conversations and I, I try to find other ways to make change. So for those who feel like the overt, racism only lives in these overt, large ways, uh, whether it be in, in the media, on the news, in movies, in our history, um, I, I usually talk to them about those subtle ways that it, that it shows up. Um, and so racism doesn't need to have, this, it doesn't need to be this big production. It doesn't always, it's not always, um, it's not always a, a group of, of KKK or white supremacists marching uh, or attacking our capital for that, for that matter. It can show up in a workplace setting day in, day out in just interpersonal react in interpersonal um, relationships in conversation. And I think drawing out what those mean and what those look like um, is really, really important. And, and there's several different examples of what that can look like. Um, but I think that for leaders, it, it's really understanding what those situations are to come to that realization. I know as a person who's worked in professional environments, you know, all my life, I've oftentimes, and, and at least for the last 20 years, been the only uh, African-American person in my newsroom uh, and that's whether I was on radio or uh, in, uh, in print or in online. And so, you know, even though people don't think of themselves as biased, by being in a hom uh, homogenous uh, environment day in and day out, it just lends itself to you having a lack of understanding, which could then lead to behavior that is uh, unwittingly biased and, and, and continues to uh, perpetuate stereotypic responses and, and lack of understanding. And, and until people can recognize that as being part of the, the, the racism issue, then uh, it'll, it'll be, again, it's a long slog, but it, can, it just takes some recognition and some just acquiescence to the idea that I have some bias, but I need to learn how to uh, identify it and then learn how to, uh, to change that behavior so that the environment that I work in and the people who work in here uh, also have a, a better situation to come to. We're speaking today with Neelam Chan, founder and CEO of Shift SLC, a diversity and inclusion consulting firm. Along with Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. This is the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, joined by Neelam Chand, founder and CEO of Shift SLC. She's going to been talking to us about how, in a, uh, generally speaking, a, a company or a professional environments or, or work environments, how people can make change. And uh, this is kind of based on an article she wrote called, Now That the Protests Are Over, Companies Are Going Back to Business as Usual. Whereas, early on in the summer, uh, there was this big push to work on diversity, work on inclusion, uh, try to 
be an ally to those people of color who are being negatively impacted by uh, workplace and just societal bias. But uh, as time goes on, that momentum kind of waned, and now we're at a situation where people are, have just gone back to the way it used to be, as much as they can under this, this COVID environment. But I, I wanted to ask you, Neelam, what do you, in this situation that we find ourselves in now, where we don't have the momentum that we used to, where do we go from here to try to uh, reclaim some of that uh, positive momentum, some of that positive energy, so that we can actually make some change in the uh, years ahead? Well, I think the, the biggest thing for us is to continuously talk about racism and continuously talking about anti-racism in the workplace, to not ever go silent. Um, and I don't think we need to have these conversations when there's a crisis. I mean, I think that's important, but I think that that's not the only time. I think we need to make it continuous where it's part of, it's a part of our day in and day out, where leaders are constantly starting off meetings talking about racism um, and, and, and maybe in the most subtle ways. Um, but I think keeping the conversation going, I think that's important because now it's part of your culture. And when we engage in those conversations, we are validating the, the employees when we think about in a workplace setting, we're invalidating the, the Black, Indigenous, and people of color employees and their experiences on a consistent basis, not when we see the news, not when something happens outside of the organization. Um, it's, it really truly becomes an, an everyday practice. I think that's so important. Um, and, and then the other piece of it is really doing personal work. Um, I think when we all really understand the way we show up and the way we uphold racism and racist ideologies, beyond reading you know how to be an anti-racist and, and beyond reading white privilege uh reading these books that are out but really truly understanding our own roles um and looking back to our upbringing looking back into our own biases if we really take a moment to do the work we can change we can change a whole organization we can change a whole culture um but it really takes us you know, really activating our allyship um, beyond reading books and articles and watching um, a documentary, a documentary on, on racism. So I think that is just really becoming introspective and taking the time to do the work really will have some positive change. And it, it's not easy. It's going to take some time. It's going to, there's going to be some harsh realities, but if we're willing to do that, then we will see change. I'm, I'm positive of that. So let me ask you a question. I just read an article a couple of weeks ago about um, how most of the job losses in the last quarter were almost exclusively women of color. Um, so there were fewer job losses than expected. Jason knows these numbers better than me because that's his assigned beat. But I have heard so little about that. And I just think the value we place on certain jobs and certain people in, I mean, maybe it's media, but I think in just in society in general. And so I, I feel sometimes very hopeless about having those conversations because um, I just feel like we've just been having these for, I feel like I've been having the same conversations for 30 years, really. And I don't know, like, where do you get the energy to just be, you know, and I just keep telling myself, well, you have privilege. So you, ha you know, 
you think you're tired, you know, think about being one of the people who had their job eliminated. <laughs> um, but I, I just wonder about, you know, the media's responsibility in this and how can we shift, how can we have more voices, um, you know, that, that just make this part of everyday life, not this one-off story about, you know, a single issue or a single incident. Yeah, I think, I think representation is so important and making sure that many stories, many voices are being heard. And it's interesting you bring up women of color, because when I think about in, in my article, I write about the emotional tax that uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color employees face in the workplace where they feel on guard on a day-to-day -day basis. And part of the 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 the, the emotional tax that um, really impact uh, people of color, impact women of color the most, and more specifically Black and Latinx women um, the most. And I think it's because there is this intersection of gender and race that plays a big part of of a woman of color's identity and, and sort of navigating these waters. But no one really talks, and you're right, no one really talks about those experiences, not on a mainstream platform. So I think it is important for uh, storytellers to, to really create those platforms, to really create spaces where the most marginalized um, folks in a workplace setting and in our society in general have a voice and, and there is, are able to talk about their experiences in these spaces. Otherwise, we're not, we're just sort of oblivious. We're not really learning from each other and we're not, um, we're not, we're not addressing the issues that are, that are large, largely um, impacting the most vulnerable populations. And so I, I think that it is, there is a big responsibility in storytellers and the media to make space for the voices that are not mainstream, the voices that are not consistently heard. You know, I, when we started talking, uh, you and I uh, just offline, it's just the recognition that people have to have for themselves that they're, they can be part of the solution, but they also have to recognize they've been part of the problem. And just because you've had that uh, experience and that you exhibited that behavior in the past doesn't necessarily mean it has to continue. I, I often think that if, if, if we were to just look inside, I used to look, I had to be awakened to my own misogyny. It's not something I was proud of, but it was also something I wasn't doing necessarily intentionally, at least not uh, you know, uh, consciously. So if I'm able to look in the mirror and say, okay, th these are shortcomings I have, but if I work to uh, correct them, then I'm better. And the people who uh, I influence and who engage with me, they're, they're uh, better for it as well. So it just takes a little bit of, um, I don't know, a little courage, but to be honest with you, just uh, enough determination to say, you know what, I'm, I'm not gonna take it so personally that I can't do better. Because- And I, I also think if we took it less personally and just said like we were just, this, our, our culture is, is steeped in white supremacy and, um, and sexism. And so what choice do we really have? But we were baked in that pie, right? So now we have to figure it out and unravel it. And so it's not necessarily choices you made. At some point, they become your choices. But it's sometimes just the way we were indoctrinated or, you know, the way we were raised, the way we were taught. Right. And, you know, that's okay because we, we can overcome that too. Listen, I want to say thank you to Neelam Chan, founder and CEO of Shift SLC, uh, the diversity and inclusion firm here in Salt Lake City. 
Join us again for the next episode of the uh, Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. And if you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at voramed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast in all the places where you might find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, along with Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.